topic for today is uh, concentration or samadhi. And uh, thinking that I was, knowing that I was going to talk about the, the subject, I thought I would try to get as you know, concentrated as I could in the sitting. <laughs> and um, I didn't get that concentrated, but I feel a little bit like I don't want to talk now. <laughs> Concentration does um, change things uh, quite quickly. And um, so the reason uh, concentration is a subject for this evening is that uh, in the weeks, these weeks right now that I'm here on Monday nights, I'm giving a series of talks on the five faculties. And uh, it happens to be that the fourth faculty is concentration. The um, there's a few things as a background or as an introduction to the faculties. Um, there are capacities that we all have, so they're not something that's foreign to us. And there are the capacities of confidence. We either have it or don't have it, or have, very, have it in various degrees, and the things that we do. There is um, the f- capacity or faculty for applying ourselves, of applying effort, of being engaged. And in different situations, we apply ourselves more or less. Maybe in the same activity in different times, we can get, there's more effort or more engagement in the activity than there is at other times. And, um, and then there's the faculty of mindfulness, of paying careful attention, of recognizing what's going on. And then there's a the faculty of concentration, and then the fifth faculty is that of um, usually translated as wisdom. And I, in, this, in, in this list of five, I prefer, I prefer the word discernment uh, because um, it's a faculty that we use. Um, it's a kind of discovered in the process of engaging it. And wisdom, in my mind, has the idea of kind of, kind of like knowledge you bring with you. Kind of your, you have wisdom and you bring it to bear on your, your life. Whereas discernment, is more active. You kind of are discerning in particular situations. You come in a new situation, you're discerning. You might bring understanding and wisdom that you have, but applying it and knowing how it applies requires some level of discerning or discernment. Um, and in a lot of the teachings of the Buddha, a lot of the lists and a lot of the things that he taught, teaches, it doesn't take a lot of analysis to realize that um, um, behind the so-called religious or spiritual veneer of what he seems to be talking about, he's often talking about things that are very practical that apply in a lot of different settings. Um, And they apply in a lot of activities in daily life. And so they're not really foreign from certain capacities we have, but also things we're already using. So the five faculties, for example, as I've been saying, are something which uh, come into play in every activity probably we engage in. Um, There's some aspect of confidence involved in the activity. Uh, Things like driving your car, probably most of you um, have forgotten that you're confident in driving your car. But some of you probably have to remember it every time. You can arouse your confidence and and trust and faith that driving your car is something you can do or that other people can do. And uh, and so it's okay for you to be on the road. And... um, so, you know, it's there, sometimes hidden and sometimes something we have to negotiate and work with. And it's something as simple as driving a car. 
And then there's the engagement of driving a car. We can be quite engaged and have a lot of, a lot of good effort and energy in driving the car. Or we can be lackadaisical about it or we could be lazy about it. Um, uh, there can be a little certain alertness or mindfulness when driving a car. And that can be up or down, how intense that is. After a near accident, usually our mindfulness, our alertness is much sharper for a while than it was after, you know, before the near accident. And um, the focus, you know, is also another thing that's really needed when you drive your car, right? You have to be focused on what you're doing. And uh, enough so you don't have an accident, and enough so you get where you want to go. And then just, and driving a car, you have to be very discerning when you drive your car. You have to track the other traffic and, you know, the lights and the pedestrians and this and that. And you have to know all kinds of things that you're discerning and watching and tracking and monitoring as you drive. So the five faculties, the list of uh, activities we use, that list of capacities that come into play in all activities that we engage in is the argument that I want to make. Whether you're making bread or doing the work you do at work or if you work or whatever, uh, you can probably analyze your involvement with it according to these five faculties. And the, the suggestion is that if you use these ideas of these five capacities we have, you can kind of uh, monitor yourself to see what is needed to be able to do your activity uh, more fully or more completely or more accurately. There are times when we realize we need more energy or we need more confidence in what we're doing. We need more mindfulness or more focus or more discerning, more monitoring and tracking what's going on in a discerning way. And so, uh, you know, if something's not working out, we're not succeeding in some activity, we can, you can ask yourself, which of these five need to be improved on, uh, need to be focused on here to make things work better? One of the things I'm fond about um, these five faculties in that they're capacities we all have, it doesn't really matter uh, what spiritual tradition you belong to um, uh, because uh, they apply in all spiritual traditions. Whatever, whatever you can apply yourself, they somehow come into play. So whether you're Christian or Buddhist or Muslim or Hindu or whatever, um, uh, there are capacities we all take with us wherever we, wherever we go. And we all co- they come into play wherever we go. Whether you belo- belong to so-called non-dualistic spiritual traditions or dualistic spiritual traditions, you still have to you have these five faculties you carry with you. And they come into play in different ways. Um, and they either strong or weak or some in, 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 exist in relationship to each other. So the Buddha talked a lot about the five faculties in relationship to the activity of meditation. And what he suggested is that uh, you use these five, look at these five faculties that you have, and see how you, can, how you can tune them and work with them so that your meditation practice can be more successful, uh, whatever your meditation happens to be. And um, if there's not an adequate amount of confidence in the right things, it's very hard to gauge a meditation practice or a spiritual practice. And certainly confidence in oneself, but also confidence in the practice itself and confidence that if you engage in a certain way, that, um, that uh, the purpose for why you're engaged in is going to be fulfilled. Whether it's a non-dualistic approach or dualistic approach or whatever, there's some confidence that if you sit down to do meditate that you're going to fulfill the purpose that you have. And if you don't have that confidence, it can be very tricky, kind of very rocky to sit down and, and practice. Um, 
effort is, you know, is a uh, wonderful thing of meditation. I love effort. It's kind of a mystery about it. I talked about it a few weeks ago. And it's, um, it's, uh, it's there's something mysterious to me about the effort because effort is something that I apply and I do. It also has to do with kind of the kind of native energy or the arousing energy, the energetics, vitality that seems to come and go that sometimes has a tremendous effect on meditation but seems to have very little to do with my, my, my effort. I make effort, but then something else, some aliveness sometimes gets aroused in a way that seems mysterious. Sometimes it's called effortless effort. Um, so today's subject is samadhi and concentration. And samadhi is a great word. Uh, in the uh, Sanskrit kind of Indian religious traditions, many of them put a lot of emphasis on the word samadhi. Some of them have a very exalted uh, meanings of the word, much more exalted than the Buddhists have. Um, and often samadhi refers to uh, great states of transcendence, great states of peace, of union with, with you know, the, the, what's ultimate. Um, samadhi has you know, very powerful connotations in much of Indian relig- religiosity. In Buddhism, samadhi um, isn't, tends not to be, especially in, in early Buddhism, tends not to be as exalted as you find some other Indian traditions. But the word samadhi is more or less um, uh, synonymous with our word concentration. Um, to be focused, to be concentrated with our attention on what we're paying attention to. The problem with the word concentration in English as a, as a translation is that we tend to think of concentration as being a one-pointedness of mind. And that's an important part of concentration, but it's not only a mental thing. It's not only the capacity to hold something fixed in our, in our attention that is samadhi. Samadhi is something that um, is more um, holistic. It's something more all-encompassing. It's more like when the, when, the, when the concentration is really strong, it's something we, with seemingly the whole body and mind, the whole unit of body and mind, is working together for the purposes of this absorption or this concentration, this focus that we're engaged in. So my favorite translation of samadhi is not concentration, but rather is the English word composure. And part of the reason I like the word composure is that the, the Sanskrit roots for the word samadhi um, are probably more, more uh, similar to the roots of the English word composure than they are to the word concentration. The sum of samadhi means with. And kam uh, of composure, kan, also means with. And uh, the D part, the D-H-I of samadhi, uh, seems to mean uh, uh, to stand or to pose and, uh, in its root. And so to stand with, to pose with, um, is the roots of samadhi. And, um, and composure then works really well, doesn't it? To be composed. So, you know, etymologically it works. But uh, more, that, more than that, composure is something that's more embodied. You, when you compose yourself on something, you don't just do it with your mind. You kind of you do it with your whole being. You know, I was composed in my chair. I was composed in the midst of, you know, giving a speech. Uh, I, you know, it's something you kind of, I'm gonna, let, take, let me take a moment to compose myself. And it's often something you kind of, you kind of it's a physical or embodied kind of activity of centering oneself on oneself it's not just simply a mental uh, one-pointed focus. So to be composed on one's breath, to be composed on one's object of meditation, um, 
has, in my mind at least, a kind of sense of being more settled and relaxed and, and held or contained or kind of holding in a balanced way with my whole being the subject of absorption of attention. So to comp- how do I compose myself on my breathing is a different exercise than how do I concentrate on my breath. And uh, my suggestion is that, or my idea is that, if I'm composed on the breath, it's a lot easier to be concentrated on it, to be focused on it. So samadhi has this kind of holistic approach. Kind of, and sometimes people will talk in Buddhism about concentration as being a unification of the body and the mind. And it's this unification of the body and mind that makes concentration so useful and important for uh, the spiritual development of mindfulness for, for the, the path that the early Buddha, the Buddha was talking about in the early scriptures. Um, the mind that's not unified, the mind that's not composed, not focused, not concentrated, is a mind that's more likely to be uh, agitated and fragmented and spinning around, wandering around in its attention. And it doesn't take a lot of mindfulness to sit down in meditation and realize that a fair percentage of the time the mind is out of control. And one of the exercises you can do to find out, to measure how well your mind is concentrated is to count your breaths. Count your breaths from one to ten. And um, I'll do that still sometimes. I did it for years. And sometimes I do it as a a check on myself. Uh, Sometimes I think I'm more concentrated than I am. And so then I'll count my breath a little bit to find out. And I get to four and I realize, wait a minute. You know, I'm not as concentrated as I thought I was. I was kind of, you know, my mind, my mind actually, I feel pretty good. I feel pretty com- stable and there and present. But actually the mind still has a very strong uh, uh, currents of getting caught up in various preoccupations and concerns to get lost in what's going on. So it doesn't take a lot of uh, mindfulness to realize that the mind can be quite easily wanders away freely, scattered in many different directions. Um, when the mind is that way, agitated, it, the mind or the, the inner eye, the inner awareness, cannot see very accurately what's going on. Uh, and so the analogy of developing concentration is that of um, wanting to take a photograph uh, while you're walking around. I mean, nowadays, these cameras are so fast, maybe it doesn't matter, but in the old days, you had to get a tripod if you wanted to, you know, and you, so you got a tripod and you put the camera there, and then you had the stability to be able to get a good picture of uh, something. Um, and uh, so the, the, mind, the mind that's concentrated is a mind that's kind of created a tripod for itself that stay, has a stable base, and so you get this clear, clearer vision of what's going on. The paradox uh, with mindfulness and concentration is that, um, I mean, not, not always, but kind of, kind of works, is that the more the mind is moving, the more agitated the mind is, the more the body seems to be unmoving and solid. The stiller the mind is, the more the body seems to be constantly in flux, in motion, in changing. Isn't that interesting? And the idea in Buddhism is that when the mind is filled with concepts and ideas and distraction and caught up in itself and its preoccupations and concepts, 
um, it doesn't really have an accurate view or experience of our own body. And as the mind becomes quieter and stiller and drops below the conceptual level because it has this kind of stillness, it actually can see and experience the body in a more realistic way. So a very simple exercise to give you a sense of this is um, we, you know, we go around with our idea of our hand. And, you know, my hand bumps into my other hand and my hand does this and I pick up the pen or my hand does this and that. And the, as long as I'm living in the world of my hand, the concept of my hand, the, the hand is kind of a fixed thing. Like you, it moves around. And so, but it's kind of like the hand is the hand. But if, I, but if I close my eyes, or you close your eyes now, or whatever, and just feel your hand. Experience, what is, experience the hand's experience of itself. below that conceptual level, even if you hold the hand still, what you'll find is that different sensations make up the experience of hand. Pulsing, vibration, temperature, warmth, coolness, tightness, you know, vibration, all kinds of different sensations. And the more you kind of sense your way into those sensations, the more you start probably become aware those sensations are in flux and moving and dancing around a little bit in that air, general area that we called hand. The stiller their mind is, the more the body tends to, you know, tends to be moving around. So the idea that um, uh, this tripod idea, the stability, when the mind is stable, we tend to be able to experience things at a different level of life than the level of life when the mind is very active and busy. The other reason for developing concentration is that as the mind gets concentrated, it tends to uh, temporarily become pure. It's a word that the Indian religion, Indian Buddhism likes a lot, the idea of purity. It tends no longer to, uh, um, uh, as the mind gets more concentrated, uh, temporarily um, the, uh, the obstructions, the hindrances, the filters, the bias, um, the uh, fears, the desires, the wants, the aversions, that tend to color how we see things and how we experience things, temporarily falls away. Um, a mind that uh, is very concentrated cannot have a lot of wants. A mind that has a lot of desires cannot get concentrated. It's, why, it's one of the reasons why Buddhists don't like to watch commercials. Because they're trying to get you to have a lot of desires. And if you have a lot of desires, you can't get concentrated. It's also why Buddhists don't like to listen to a lot of, um, what's the expression, hate-mongering? Is that the word? Hate-mongering. Because if you have a lot of hate, you can't get concentrated. You can't get still. And um, uh, as you get more and more concentrated, those kinds of tendencies of uh, hate or fear or desire or uh, confusion or doubt tends to fall away. And as those fall away, then it's like... um, um, the, the, um, it's the analogy given in the ancient tradition is that of water. And uh, water that has, um, uh, when the mind has a lot of desires, it's like water that has a lot of waves. And you can't see through the, to, the, to the bottom of the water if you have all these waves kind of roughing up the surface. Or if you have a lot of anger, uh, the mind has a lot of anger, it's kind of like the, mind, it's kind of like the water has been... Uh, um, colored by some red dye. And because of the dye, you can't see clearly through the water. And um, 
And so as, as the mind gets concentrated, it kind of purifies the mind of these things that tend to create filters so that we don't see clearly also what's going on. One of the things that makes it very difficult for us to see accurately is our self-centered ideas, our preoccupation with self. And one of the functions of concentration is to begin to still or quiet the kind of uh, incessant self-preoccupation that a lot of us are often caught up in as we go about our daily life. And our view of ourselves and our view of ourself in relationship to others um, tends, for a few of us, to be a little inaccurate. (laughs) And so for those few people that our self-concept is not so useful or not so accurate, um, concentration is very, very helpful because, again, it can quiet that activity of the mind which is full of self-judgment or self-loathing or, or self-aggrandizement or, or you know, all kinds of ideas of self. The idea of self is a magnet to all kinds of personal and familial and cultural ideas of what it means to be a self. And then we tend to carry it along as baggage, as wind drag, these ideas of self. That makes often our life quite confusing, quite difficult. Life becomes a lot easier when we don't carry around with us a lot of complicated ideas of self. One of the advantages of developing a concentrated mind is that these ideas tend to fall away for a while and we get a taste and experience of ourselves without the operating of all these ideas of self. And it's a real surprise to some people to realize that they can exist without having ideas of who they are. For some people it's quite frightening for a while and for some people it's a huge relief. Some people it's frightening first before they feel the relief. Just, I mean, just imagine, just sitting there quietly with your eyes closed, minding your own business, very safe environment to be in, and then realizing that you don't have to have any kind of idea of self, and then getting frightened. What is to be frightened about? No, but uh, people have gotten, I've gotten very afraid sitting in meditation when I was a new student, um, and realizing that the next moment what I was being asked to do in meditation was to let go of certain activity of thinking that had to do around self and being so, feeling so vulnerable, so afraid or uncertain about life and myself if I let go of that and feel, oh, I can't do that. <laughs> and, uh, and as a meditation teacher, I've come to people, I've had people come to me, uh, especially on retreats, in a state of panic. And nothing's happening except their, their idea of who they are is being challenged. Uh, in the course of meditation practice. And then after a while they come back and usually people feel quite a relief. Wow, what a relief not to have that. How did I, how did, you know, it's like people, <laughs> anyway. Um, another reason for developing uh, concentration, uh, developing, is that um, the more concentrated the mind becomes, the more it tends to produce a kind of joy and well, sense of well-being and happiness in our psychophysical system that seemingly has no um, object for its arising. You know, mostly people feel happy if something happens in their life that causes them to be happy. Um, so, for example, if you win the lottery, some people get happy. Or, you know, someone takes you out to a wonderful meal or some good thing happens, you know, it's been raining for a long time and then it becomes sunny and you're really happy to be able to go out and get some fresh air and go for a walk. 
Um, so things happen and we get happy and unhappy. Uh, the wonderful thing about concentration, there's a happiness that's conditioned by the concentration, it's brought on by the concentration, but it doesn't have any reason for it to be there. Um, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so um, it gives a very different sense of happiness and sense of well-being that can be there without a reason. Um, and developing a sense of joy and happiness in our life that comes from meditation is a wonderful um, antidote to all the ways in which we don't feel a sense of well-being. For some people, it's very healing at almost cellular level to feel the kind of joy and happiness of meditation. Some people spend so much of their life beating themselves up and being self-critical and being anxious and being nervous. And to develop the kind of concentration that, in a sense, substitute that sense, that, that sense of Ill, Ill, uh, uh, ill-ease, bad, you know, not, feel, not feeling good about oneself, with a sense of well-being, um, it's kind of like being bad, bathed in light, bathed in joy and delight, bathed in, some, in goodness. And it's very, very healing for some people. It also makes it a lot easier to keep doing the meditation practice. If you're really enjoying meditation, you're more likely to want to keep doing it. <laughs> and if you're not enjoying it, then it's harder to want to do it. So it's a great, it's a great inspiration uh, for deepening the practice when there's a sense of well-being that comes with it also. And that's part of what comes with concentration. Sometimes uh, that sense of well-being is not always there with mindful- when people do mindfulness practice only. And sometimes um, uh, people will sh- switch to, me- to concentration meditation um, in order to develop a sense of well-being as a foundation so they can go back and deal with things which are quite difficult to deal with when they're uh, focusing on the uh, mindfulness meditation. Um, so uh, developing concentration developing our, our capacity for concentration is a good idea we all have the capacity of developing our concentration and it's best when you're developing your concentration not to compare yourself with any idea of how concentrated you're supposed to be, or other people, compared to how other people are in getting concentrated. In order to help you with that, I'll tell you one thing you can compare yourself to. Um, Since I'm kind of the teacher, sometimes people look up to me as being someone who's a great meditator and all that, and have great abilities and whatever. I don't know what the people think, but it's usually not true. Uh, But I don't think of myself as having a very good ability to get concentrated. I don't. Um, I've developed over time, and I've learned a lot, of, lot, learned a lot about the, the, the realms of concentration and meditation, so that it sometimes, because of my knowledge and my, my knowledge and my understanding, sometimes I get more concentrated now than I used to be able to get, or faster, I can get faster than I used to be able to get. But it's really out of many, many years of like, experience and, and, uh, and developing myself that I have some you know, more ability now than I did a long time ago. But by, by nature, I don't, you know, my mind is not uh, very easily concentrated. I meet people whose minds can get very easily concentrated, who have a tremendous native ability to get concentrated. And, you know, it's a little bit, en- I'm a little bit envious at times. Why? Boy, that's nice. Um, but I think it's best not to compare yourself to anyone, uh, to any, anybody at all. And what I've learned is that um, it's beneficial even to to take your degree of concentration you already have 
and to improve it 2% provides tremendous benefits. Just, you know, 2%, 1%. Don't have some, you know, great lofty ideal of what you're trying to aim for. Just develop yourself a little bit. Just do as much as you can today or tomorrow or this week. Or, and slowly, slowly over time, it develops and grows. It's a muscle that gets developed over time. Um, also, when people think that the concentration is important, uh, some people have this uh, um, idea that there's one thing we need to do in order to get concentrated. And that is to um, develop kind of a one-point, have you one-pointed, just be focused and locked on what we're getting concentrated on. And um, it's kind of, you know, pretty um, limited understanding of the psyche, the mind, the body. Uh, it has to have only a, a, one idea of which one factor that needs to be developed. It's useful to think of the mind or the being who we are as an ecology, an ecological system. And so you want to kind of work the whole, all the different elements of the ecology together. You don't want to just take one element of the uh, system. But you want to have an understanding of the range of what goes on in the system and then maybe work on different things, different times, and kind of bring things together. So, you know, the five faculties are some of those things, for example. If you want to develop concentration, you need to look at the other four faculties and see how they support it. Um, it's helpful uh, to want to get concentrated. It's helpful to understand the practice of concentration, how it works. It's helpful to kind of have some, some uh, sense of how to monitor yourself as you're doing the practice. If you're not monitoring yourself and kind of learning from your mistakes, learning for how things are going, and uh, you're not really going to be able to learn the skills of how to get concentrated. So to have a kind of overview of how things are going, or kind of checking in. Oh, how is it right now? You know, oh, that was four breaths before I got distracted. That was two. Oh, there I seem to get to eight breaths. What was it that happened there? What was, it, was, there, was I more alert? Was I more energized in that moment? What was it, what it required? Was there more sense of resolve? Uh, what is it? What are some of the different elements that come into play that need to be helpful and supportive of getting concentrated? The tradition itself uh, gives some very mundane supports for concentration. It says, if you want to get concentrated, it's helpful to meditate in a clean environment, clean, orderly environment. Um, your mind is more likely to be clean and orderly if your room is clean and orderly. It also says that it's, uh, um, it's helpful to wear clean clothes. So, when you want to get concentrated, make sure you put on clean clothes first. Um, and, um, and it's helpful, it says, if you uh, associate with people who tend to be, have more concentrated lives, concentrated minds. If you associate with people who are very scattered and distractible, uh, kind of jumping all over, all over the place, then uh, we tend to kind of pick up those habits a little bit. But if we hang out with people who are settled and calm and equanimous, that tends to rub off a little bit and becomes easier for us to develop concentration. There's a list of kind of things, you know, kind of practical things to do. Um, I believe that one of the probably most important uh, supports for getting concentrated in meditation is to enjoy yourself when you're meditating. To look for where the enjoyment is. To allow yourself to, be, to enjoy yourself as you meditate. 
to, um, to go with the enjoyment, to see what is enjoyable right here. So even focusing on the breath, um, there could be some sense of pleasure or enjoyment with it. It doesn't, not always there, but, but to be tuned in to the possibility of pleasure and enjoyment as we're meditating, and then to kind of go with it or use it, use it as kind of by a feedback system to help us get stay more concentrated or get more concentrated. Um, the enjoyment and joy is very, very helpful for developing concentration. You have to have the wisdom to know that you can't always enjoy yourself. But when it's happening, go with it. That's one of the ways to develop concentration. So there's a lot more to say about concentration. And uh, at other times, I've talked a lot more about it. But um, the um, part of the purpose of this evening is for us to try out the mics. <laughs> And um, for that purpose, I need to stop talking. <laughs> so um, you can ask some good questions about concentration or some questions, and then I can try to follow up with that, talk some more about it or something else, whatever's on your mind. So you have to hold the mic. Is it on? It's on? Okay. Um, it seems that it would be... It, that Cultivating concentration would make sense to do at times of relative calm um, because I think in, in other times, um, I'm on a theme right now about not wanting to go into this thing called avoidance and denial. Avoidance and denial. Avoidance or denial. And I think it, um, it's a great practice to cultivate concentration, but if it's used at a time when there's something up, um, is that just kind of avoiding? So I'd like to hear what you say about that. I think that's a great question. Um, it's my belief, I don't have the statistical proof, but it's my belief that anybody, who, anybody, everybody who develops some ability to concentrate or to, be, to meditate in some successful way will sooner or later use their meditation as a way of avoiding something. <laughs> It just uh, comes with the territory because human beings don't, often don't want to experience things which are unpleasant. So um, uh, there are times when it's actually useful to avoid uh, what's going on. Sometimes it's a, you know, a tactical retreat for a while. I think I'm not going to look at this or deal with it because it's just too difficult, too agitating. I'm going to kind of uh, regroup myself and when we're more regrouped and stable, then I'm going to look at it. Then it's more useful. So there are you know, times like that. Um, but um, I think it's very wise what you're saying is uh, be very careful. There are times when uh, developing concentration, strong states of concentration, are used as um, to avoid a lot of things, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And I've known people uh, who've done uh, other forms of meditation practice besides mindfulness meditation, who like uh, mantric meditations, get them into deep states of concentration. They've done it for years and years and they come to a mindfulness retreat. And since that's what they're there to, that's what they're supposed to be doing there, we tell them, okay, why don't you stop using your mantra? Why don't you just pay attention to what's going on in your life? And sometimes it's a huge shock for them. I had no idea what I was avoiding. What I, you know, I didn't have all this conflict and issues inside and I was getting myself calm and peaceful and all the time I knew how to do that, but it was just an avoidance. So I don't know what to say except to concur and say, you know, you have to have the wisdom to see, the, see uh, what you're, what's needed. 
and uh, if concentration is being used as a avoidance mechanism okay, unless you have, you have another, another question about it or was that the no, no that's And in the back, behind you, behind your left. So I've been working on concentration meditation, and I've developed a very great skill of being able to count and think at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm having a hard time breaking myself of that, and I'm wondering if you have any hints. Well, I think uh, any meditation practice has a danger of becoming mechanical, any practice we're doing. And so... um, um, and then you know it becomes mechanical in a sense, or automatic pilot, and then the mind thinks and goes off. There's two things I can think of that I will just tell you now. One is that um, it's important to get a sense of that when that happens, and then make a correction, make it more alive again, so it's not just an automatic pilot or mechanical or whatever the term might be for you, but uh, but infuse the counting with real life, the kind of life that you're infusing your thoughts with, the kind of life energy involvement or interest or so it becomes more alive, more central to your, to your being. So it's really something you're, you're embracing, the counting, you're embracing the breath uh, you know, in a full way uh, when you find yourself being split that way. And so th- that could be a wonderful art, just to learn that full embracing of something. Um, and that's part of what concentration is, is full embracing of this thing. The other thing you can do as a temporary measure, uh, which I've done sometimes a little bit, is... Um, is uh, since you're doing two things at once, right? You're counting, and in a sense, two, counting and you're thinking. Okay, so keep the counting going, and then with the other track that's thinking, um, uh, recite the alphabet. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, so you're counting your breaths, and so you count you count breaths up to twenty six, right? So. And so, if you have, you know, and, so, and then you go, uh, kind of same time as you're doing saying one, you're saying A. Two, same time you're saying two, you're saying B. Three, C. And you're keeping the student going. And then uh, when you get to um, Z, you find out whether it's 27 or 25. <laughs> or, <laughs> and you do that for a few rounds or do that for five minutes. Uh, probably you find yourself more concentrated and that part of that split will kind of fall away or that you forget about what you're thinking about. Thanks. <laughs> oh, you can hold the mic a little bit further away than whatever. Eight inches. Also, maybe at the, now or at the end when we finish, also we want some feedback about using the mic, whether you think it's good. Like some people think it's great because they have these hearing devices that helps them to go through the system there, like Ken uses it, and a few other people. Um, see there, we have someone there. And uh, there, you see, we have people. We have like four people, just so I could, you know, and they appreciate it. Uh, but also some people are intimid- we, we think might be intimidated from using it and so if you're one of those people let us know because uh, that's useful for us to know also as we kind of experiment whether we want to do this at all it also slows down the. but that's good to slow things down mm-hmm. yeah, passing it around yes Smita so pass it to Smita 
I just recently <coughs> sat with a teacher who made a very clear distinction between three things. And um, in a way that I thought I hadn't heard before, maybe I was wrong. And I'm still a little bit confused about it. And concentration is one of those. So he made a distinction between samatha practice, which is concentration on an unreal object. So it can be a mantra, it can be a visual thing, or for him it could be breath, but it's so subtle. So for him it was almost like an image. Mm -hmm. Um, Then there was um, mindfulness, which was kind of choiceless depending on so I'm sitting, and if I hear a voice, and um, I'll say hearing, and then next thing that comes up, wherever my mind goes next, I don't try to stay with anything in particular, just be sort of open space, and whatever comes up, then I name it. And the third thing was, and which was recommended for me because of my body pain, um, was um, rising and falling of the stomach. So actually, I should say, even mindfulness, you're supposed to basically stay there. So it's sort of like an anger rising and falling of the stomach, and you say rising and falling. But wherever your mind goes, you sort of go there and then come back. But for me, it was said that unless it's really pulling me away, impossible, that I should really try, not really go and note something even. If I hear a voice, not even go. I mean, I, I notice it's, it's hearing. I'm, I have all my faculties open, but really try and... Right. really stay on that anchor much more firmly, and which is what he called um, uh, concentration, um, the samadhi. So do you make that distinction, and why is that three-way distinction particularly useful? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I made those three, those, that particular distinction, but uh, I know about these three different categories of, of uh, med- meditation. There are other categories also. Um, the first is uh, classic samadhi practice, concentration practice, that um, uh, as taught in the tra- tradition. The second, uh, choiceless awareness practice, is um, is uh, sometimes understood as being very as mature vipassana, uh, because it's very very hard to do with the mind is not stable and settled to, to be open to things kind of choicelessly. Uh, sometimes it's likened to shikantaza practice sometimes to Dzogchen practice a little bit, perhaps, and um, certain kind of Tibetan practice. But it's kind of just a kind of just being and just allowing things to arise in awareness freely as they actually occur without trying to do anything or having a technique. And then the third uh, uh, is um, the, uh, the classic way that uh, Mahasi practice is taught, uh, that uh, Mahasi Sayadaw and the, the Burmese system of, me- of mindfulness meditation that I learned when I was in Burma, and that which is uh, indirectly or directly, I guess, is what is taught at Spirit Rock, uh, though that Spirit Rock doesn't limit itself just to the rising, falling, the abdomen. But that's the way uh, practicing here, and you're developing. A, uh, what you're trying to do there is develop a very sharp, penetrating mindfulness um, of um, the objects of awareness. So rather than taking the surface concept idea of what things are, you want to get underneath the surface of of what we experience and really see it deeply. And so. It, uh, but you need a lot of concentration in order to do that. And so the Mahasi technique tends to choose one area, the rising and falling of the abdomen. It could be somewhere else, but that's what they, they tend to choose. And you, you develop your mindfulness in that particular area so that at the same time you're developing a lot of concentration. And so concentration and mindfulness go in tandem. 
um, uh, classically in, in Buddhism, concentration and mindfulness are practiced separately. One way of doing it is you practice concentration practice first, and then you switch to mindfulness practice. In the Mahasi, they don't do it separately, but they do it together. And so you choose one area here, and the rising fall in the stomach and, and abdomen, and then you um, develop concentration and mindfulness together. And then if something else happens, you note it briefly, but then you come back here and keep developing the concentration in the, in the abdomen until the world of Vipassana opens up. So the kind of concentration you're talking about right now would be which of these different kinds? Oh, concentration uh, applies to any one. Concentration is a faculty that's needed for any activity we're involved in. I think that as the talk went on, I, tend to, I was talking more talking about maybe developing concentration for its own sake. Uh, but concentration is an important element of even doing any, any meditation practice that you're doing. And uh, sometimes you work on it directly, and sometimes it comes, follows along in the wake of what else you're doing. Okay. So I hope this was useful and interesting to hear about samadhi. And um, then next week we'll talk about wisdom. So thank you very much.